So we have been going through the book of John. We're on John chapter 8. Two weeks ago, I did the first 11 verses, which was the woman caught in adultery. How many of you either were here or listened to it online, so you're up to speed? Okay, good. Most of you. If you didn't, it would probably be helpful to understand this because he's speaking in the rest of this chapter out of that context. Uh, It's online if you want to go listen to it, but you don't have to. I'll review just a little bit. So what we're going to do, like I said, we did the first 11 verses. So we're going to pick up on verse 12. And, but I want you to hear it in context. Jesus has just did the whole woman caught in adultery thing. And then we pick up verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. So he makes this statement. He stands up to this crowd in the temple and says, I am the light of the world, and if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. And what I want you to see is, in context, what's just happened, what we covered last time, is the woman uh, caught in adultery was exposed. Her darkness was basically thrust into the light against her will, right? And... Uh, the way Jesus dealt with that was to say, anyone here who has no sin, who has no darkness, feel free to pick up a rock and go for it. And no one does. We talked about that uh, two weeks ago, that the way he dealt with that was to establish the principle of equal guilt. We are all equally guilty before a holy God, and none of us are capable of innocently throwing stones right? And so it's in this context where Jesus has established to everyone present in the temple, all of you are guilty equally of sin. All of you have darkness. None of you could have come up here and picked up a stone and thrown it at her. And from that understanding, he makes this statement, but I am the light of the world. If anyone walks and if anyone follows me, he won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so what he's saying there is, to a crowd, he's just uh, explained to or demonstrated to that we are equally all, equally guilty of sin, that I am the answer. I am the light. If you will come to me, you don't have to walk in that darkness that you're very aware of right now, because I've just pointed it out, right? And so this is the context that I want you to get. That John chapter 8, the entire chapter is basically a call to come to the light, to come to Jesus, to receive mercy and grace. Just like the woman caught in adultery did. They all saw, oh dear, she's in trouble. And Jesus basically says, no, you're all in trouble. You're all guilty of sin. But I'm dispensing mercy and grace. Go and sin no more. And so he's telling them how to have the same experience she just had. Come into the light. Mercy and grace. The entire chapter uh, is that. And so I want you to get that as we look through the chapter. Now, before we do that, since he's talking about coming into the light, I want to review. Obviously, we're going through John. So we've already done John chapter 3, but that's been a while back and you may have forgotten. So I want to review a couple verses in John chapter 3, so you really understand this light-dark thing. He's calling them to come into the light. He says, if you'll come into the light, if you'll follow me, you don't have to walk in darkness, okay? Uh, some people want to walk in darkness. You guys are familiar with John three sixteen. If you watch college football, and you should, uh, then, right, uh, then you know uh, what John three sixteen says. And, of course, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The who believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then in verse 17, he starts talking about God didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I want to pick up at verse 19 through 21. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, which is the declaration Jesus just made in verse 12, right? That the light has come into the world... And here's the condemnation. Men love darkness rather than light. Why would they do that? Well, because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And so he's saying, I'm light, and if you'll follow me, you don't have to walk in darkness. And there are people that will go, well, we kind of like the darkness because we like our evil deeds, and if we come to you, those will be exposed. And that's a choice, isn't it? It's a valid choice. All of our choices will have consequences. The consequence for that one is significant. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Whoever practices evil hates the light, not just avoids it, hates it. Why? Who really enjoys being exposed? And if, if you're doing something you really like doing and you don't intend to quit doing it, you hate being exposed. And light is really annoying, right? Hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That's probably why all the Pharisees walked away when they dropped their rocks instead of staying around. They didn't want to be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen. They've been done in God. And what I want you to see here is, in order to come to the light, we have to have a desire for truth. And what we're going to see is, we have to have a desire for truth in us, truth about us, truth about my heart, uh, which uh, we don't always desire, do we? Yeah, that's an interesting prayer. God really show me the truth about my heart. That's, he'll do it, <laughs> right? And so we have to desire truth, and we have to see that that's the choice that every person in the world has to make when confronted with light, and that we make every day, literally every day. We have to choose between our evil deeds and a love for the truth. I love 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. In context, it's talking about the appearance of the Antichrist and uh, all the people that will be deceived by the Antichrist in the last day when he sets himself up in the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, showing him, acting like he's God. And it says specifically, they will be, they will be deceived because they did not receive a love of the truth. Right? And so there's self-deception there. James, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We don't let the word, we let his word into us. If we don't desire truth, we are ripe for deception. And the Antichrist will deceive us. And so... There's this thing, am I going to choose my evil deeds? Am I going to choose truth, a desire for truth, even if it's unpleasant truth, even if it's unpleasant truth about my own heart? Am I going to choose that? And so that's the truth, uh, that's the choice that we all have, that we make daily. And the other thing is this, it's not like God goes, here's the darkness, here's the truth, choose. We can't even see the truth until we come to the light. I love Psalm 36, 9. It says, in your light, we see light. If you're in the darkness, you don't even see the truth. You don't even see the light. We have to first come to the light to even see accurately, even see ourselves accurately, right? And so uh, we come to the light. That verse also, I think, talks about rivers of pleasure. So there's some other benefits of coming to the light you might want to think about. But we can't know truth without coming to his light. So all we can do is desire truth and trust that he is the light. And if I come to him, I'll experience greater truth. Amen? So keeping that in mind, this chapter is about Jesus calling all the people listening to him to follow, to come to the light of the world and receive mercy and grace for their personal darkness. All right? And so let's look at the response. Uh, a couple of these passages I'm going to go through pretty quickly. And then when we get to into the 30s here, I'm going to slow down. We're going to look at them in more detail. Uh, in 13 through 20, I'm not going to read it. You can go back and read this later with the notes in hand and, and uh, kind of see what I'm talking about. But here's what happens. Jesus says, hey, uh, your darkness, I'm light. If you'll follow me. We'll deal with that darkness. I've got mercy and grace for that. And the Pharisees go, well, we're going to need to discredit this guy because uh, we can't have him speaking the truth and making us look bad. If we don't plan on coming into the light, 
we can't have the light standing there being all lighty. We hate that. So we need to discredit him. And so they start talking about how he's his own witness and uh, you don't have any authority because you're witnessing about yourself and your testimony isn't valid. Uh, basically, we need to discredit you so that we don't have to deal with the annoying things that you're saying to us, right? And what I want you to see as they question his witness and authority is that the world and even uh, like the Pharisees, some of the religious community will do the same thing to us if we begin to proclaim truth. We begin to say things like Jesus is the light. He's the only way. There will be people that go, well, I'm going to need to discredit that because that doesn't fit with my lifestyle. And I'm going to have to remove that voice. And so you need to understand this. Part of what I think I'm after today is that uh, we understand that we aren't just, you know, we're Christians and you guys can be something else and you be nice and we'll be nice. And I got the bumper sticker with all the different coexist thing and let's all just get along. It doesn't work that way. Uh, devil will not coexist with God. And God will deal with it in time. But for right now, we got to deal with that. And there is no coexisting. There's a war. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so we need to see that we are going to be there's going to be active, uh, intentional discrediting if we declare truth. People are going to want to discredit us. That's why you got to be careful, right? And so uh, that's going on. Now, Jesus answers this by saying, well, it's not just me. The Father who sent me also bears witness of me. And we covered this pretty thoroughly in John chapter 5. So you can go back and look at those notes if you want. I'm not going to do it again. But he talked about the Father bearing witness of him. He talked about the works that he does bearing witness of him. And so we're in the same boat where we stand up and say Jesus is the only way. And a bunch of people stand up and go, well, I'm going to have to discredit that. I'm going to have to try and make you look as stupid as I can. Let me look at your life and see if I can find something. And this is where the second testimony comes in. Jesus has the second testimony of the Father. What's your second testimony? It should be the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's not just me, guys. I also, the Holy Spirit also testifies. Well, how does he do that? Well, uh, gifts of the Spirit. Supernatural things happen in their presence. And they go, oh, yeah, that doesn't look like Tony. That looks like something else. Even more, hear me, even bigger deal, fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to discredit you. And I'm going to be a real pain in the butt to you. And I go, well, I'm going to love you and express joy and peace. And they go, well, that, that's not, why, what, what? That's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's testifying right now that it's not just me. That the truth I'm speaking carries the testimony of the Spirit. You understand this? Jesus needed a second testimony. You need a second testimony. Isn't it good news that God's given you his Holy Spirit so that you can have testimony in your life? And again, gifts of the Spirit, absolutely, let's do it. But man, everybody can do the fruit of the Spirit if we come to the light and let Jesus work in our hearts so that we're actually bearing the fruit of the Spirit, right? Okay, so uh, good point. Let's move on. Um, verses 21 through 30 uh, Jesus, again, I'm going to blow through these. Jesus makes three statements that I want to look at just quickly. And we've already actually looked at two of these. Um, the first one is he's talking to the Pharisees here and he says, I'm going away. He's going to heaven. He doesn't explain that real thoroughly to him. He goes, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And we just covered this. He made the exact same statement in John chapter 7. So we just recently did it. But he's reminding them, hey, uh, I'm from heaven, you're from the earth, I'm going away. You're going to continue to look for the Messiah, and you're not going to find him. And you're going to die in your sin because you didn't believe in Jesus. Because he is the only way. Because the only thing that can deal with our sin is Jesus. Amen? So he reminds the Pharisees of this, and 
And then he tells them, I'm just looking at these principles because I want you to see the really clear dichotomy that Jesus is always aware of. There's heaven, there's earth, there's darkness, and there's light. There's the world, and there's the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, you are not of this world. That's why they can't hear him. We'll see that real clearly in verse 43, or you can look at it later. Uh, he tells them, you can't hear me because you're of your father. You're not of this, you're of this world. And so if we choose the world, not only are we choosing death over the life and the light that is in Jesus, but we won't even be able to hear him. We choose the world enough, and uh, it'll get really, 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 really hard to even hear his voice. Pharisees couldn't even hear him. They couldn't hear his words because they'd chosen the world. He says, you're of the world. You're committed to the things that the world can give you, and you can't even hear me, Right? But, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, and we looked at this in John chapter 3, verse 14, it's very clear there that he's talking about when Moses in the wilderness lifted up the serpent, and if they looked to the serpent upon the stick, uh, they were healed. That's a type of Jesus on the cross. And so, he's talking about the cross, and he says, but when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He, and that I am sent by my Father. In other words, uh, once I'm crucified... It'll be clear who I am and who sent me. Uh, but you still got to believe, right? So, went through that quickly because I wanted to spend some time in verses 31 through 36. There are three, like, really good refrigerator memory verses in here uh, that we want to make sure we deal with, okay? And so we're going to read those. Verses 31 through 36, let me get down there in my Bible. Verse... Uh, 31 through 32, and this is the crux of where we're going today. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Amen? Amen. Now let's make sure we understand this progression, because this is not, I don't think, an instant this is a process. It is the process of coming to the light. Jesus called them in verse 12 to the light. Come to the light. I'm the light of the world. If you'll follow me, you won't walk in darkness. How do we do that, Jesus? Well, here's the process. If you abide in my word, in other words, uh, I'm reading it. I'm getting it in me. I'm letting it enter my heart. We're going to see in a little while that the Pharisees had no place in their heart for his word. I'm letting your word come into me. And as I'm doing that, as I'm abiding in your word, I'm deciding to be a disciple. Who knows what the word disciple means? Follower. follower. What do followers do? Follow. follow. So what do followers who are reading his word do? Follow it. They don't debate it. They don't try and explain it away. Amen. They try and understand it and follow it. That's what disciples do. So he's going, okay, if you will... Abide in my word, and then you'll follow it, follow me, come to the light, and then follow the light. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to know truth. You're going to begin to experience greater and greater and greater levels of truth. And as you do that, you're going to get free. You're going to begin to experience freedom from the bondages that are in the world because you're entering into the light. You're entering into truth. Does everyone understand this process? All right. Does everyone understand that it is a process and it is a lifelong process? Good. Okay. So he's describing this process and the Pharisees uh, miss what they always miss. They take a natural application. It's yet one more time where Jesus is talking about spiritual things and they can only see a natural application. And so uh, they, uh, where am I at? Yeah. Uh, so he's talking about being free, and they go, hey, look, my dad wasn't a slave. We're Abraham's kids. We're not slaves. What are you talking about? We never, we've always been, we're not slaves. And they're talking about the natural. Jesus is talking about the spiritual. So he goes on to talk about how they're spiritual slaves. And we will pick this up. And by the way, uh, not only did the Pharisees not get that he was talking about the natural here, they didn't even get that the Messiah primarily was come to deal with us on a spiritual level. Remember, uh, the Jews and the Pharisees regularly 
would ask questions about the kingdom and when, basically, when's the Messiah going to come and Rome won't be ruling us anymore? They're looking for a king to set them free. They weren't looking for a Messiah to deal with the darkness in their hearts. They weren't even looking for that, right? You may not have been looking for that. Isn't it good news that there's a king that will set you free from the darkness in your heart? So, he addresses this then in verse 34, where he says, uh, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So they're going, hey, Abraham's our father. We've never been in bondage. He goes, no, no, no. You're all kinds of in bondage. You're a slave of sin. We just proved that because all of you put your rocks down, remember? So, yes, you were in bondage. You were a slave of sin. Now, I wanted to develop this a little bit because I don't, I think we, we, I don't know. I'm not sure we, we get this all the time, of the nature of sin and what sin is like. It's like, you know, uh, I, I, I go for a walk near, you know, a farm or something. I go, oh, I stepped in some sin. When I get home, I'm going to get that sin off the bottom of my shoe, and I'll be okay. And we think that that's what sin is like. It's not like that. It's more like a sci-fi movie. You, oh, I stepped in something. Oh, it's crawling up my leg. Oh, it's, it's trying to get inside me. <laughs> right? So not farm sci-fi. That's what sin is like. There's a gr- Seriously. And we need to understand that because we think we're battling something passive. And as long as I don't step in it, I'll be okay. No, no, no. It's, it's coming for you. It moves. Genesis 4, verse 7, uh, G, uh, God's talking to Cain and Abel. They've given a sacrifice, and Cain's wasn't appropriate. We'll talk another time about why that wasn't appropriate. And God says, Cain, buddy, just if you do the right thing, you'll be accepted. He goes, but hey, listen, be careful. Listen to this statement. This is all the way back in Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at your door, and it wants you. And you have to rule over it. It is coming for you. It is at your door. The moment you step outside, it's going to try and jump you. And you have to show it who's boss. That's what he's saying. It's a little scary, isn't it? Well, that's the deal. Because there's devils. And they're real. And that's what we signed up for. It's still better than just not knowing Jesus and being in bondage and being fat, dumb, and happy. Right? So... There's a quote I love uh, that, uh, I'm sorry, I lost myself in my notes here. Uh, Peter Lord uh, said this quote, and I think it's great. Um, I can't say it in the, in the really cool Peter Lord, uh, somewhat English island accent, but uh, he would say this about sin. He said, sin will always take you farther than you plan to go, keep you longer than you plan to stay, and cost you more than you plan to pay. How many of you have found that to be true? Yep. And so we have to know, we have to be aware that uh, sin is aggressively pursuing us, not just something we can accidentally step in. We have to be aware of that because we're in a war. I like to say this, when you get saved, I tell people, when you get saved, congratulations, Two things have just happened. You've left the kingdom of darkness and entered the kingdom of light, and now you're eternal and you're going to heaven. Also, you just joined a war already in progress, and there's a lot of really evil, ugly things that want you. And you should learn to defend yourself. It's like going to the army and going, you know, I'm just going to skip boot camp. They gave me a uniform. I think I'm good. Right? No. There's going to be an enemy at some point, and you have to know how to defend yourself. This is, we're at war. It's a real war. And because we're at war, uh, that's why we teach on spiritual warfare. Now, I, I honestly, I, I think I did it in 19, and I'm about to do it again because you need to teach on spiritual warfare every couple of years. 
Um, we used to do this as one of our kind of basic classes. So we'll do it probably when I get done with John, or maybe we'll take a break in the middle and come back to it. Uh, so I don't have time now, but let me just tell you this. Spiritual warfare is mostly about the word, which we were just talking about. Mostly about using the word to resist the devil and to renew our minds. That's it. That's mostly what spiritual warfare is. We'll talk more about that later. But it comes into if you abide in my word, all right, which we've been talking about. Now, the good news is we joined a war already in progress. God started it, uh, you know. And sometimes we start, I tell people, they're like, the devil's attacking me. I go, well, you know, what are you doing? I'm praying, worshiping. I said, you started it. <laughs> start messing with his kingdom, he's going to fight back. Here's the thing. Unlike Cain, back in the Old Testament, sin crashing his door, desiring to rule over him, Jesus has been pointing out almost every chapter in John 8, in the book of John, uh, since we've been going through this, that he is the giver of the Holy Spirit, right? From the beginning, John 1, we saw John. Uh, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We are in a war, but we are now equipped with the Spirit. This changes things, all right? And here's what I want you to see. Uh, probably the best place you can see this is in Galatians. In Galatians uh, chapter 5, in verse 1, it expresses this problem we have of the aggressiveness of sin. He says, uh, uh, Galatians 5, 1, I know this, give me a second. Um, oh yeah, um, yeah, I've gone blank. Did we find it? There it is, yeah, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There's that slavery term again. It says, hey, Jesus has made you free, the cross has made you free you got to stand in that. And Hebrews 12 says, talks about the sin that so easily ensnares us. It's really easy to get entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And so I read Galatians 5.1. I go, yeah, 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 I, I'm hearing you. How do I do that? And so we go to Galatians uh, 5, verses 16 and 17. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh Lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They're at war with each other. And you've got to keep choosing the spirit, not the flesh. You understand? And so the way that we do this is to walk in the spirit. Word, follow Jesus, learn truth, experience freedom. Walk in the spirit. Come to him. Come to the light. Come to the light. I keep choosing his spirit over my flesh and my desires, right? Does this make sense? So our process then is continually coming to the light, continually appealing to the spirit when I'm having trouble with the flesh, which is going to happen until you don't have flesh. So there you go. I know it stinks, but we're in a war for the rest of our lives. But we can win. We can overcome. Jesus wouldn't call us to be overcomers if we couldn't overcome. But we can only overcome by his spirit. Which is what we get in verse 36. Um, so uh, he goes on and he says, not only whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, but I can make you free. He says, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Free indeed sounds good, doesn't it? Now, let me just point out, you may not have caught this. It says, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Not if you work really, really, really hard and prove yourself to God by making yourself free. It doesn't say, uh, don't fulfill the lust of the flesh and God will let you walk in the Spirit. Does it? It says, walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Amen. In other words, our effort isn't in overcoming our sin. Our effort is walking in the Spirit. Amen. Our effort isn't in cleaning ourselves up for God. Our effort is in God changing us. Yes. Do you understand what a big deal it is now when he says, I'm the light, come to me, come to me, come to me. So it's a continual call to come to him, not self-effort, not 
you know, ah, screwed up again. I'm not going to go to God until I get myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself fixed up, and then I'm going to go to God. And God's going, no, you're not. Uh, you're going to do it again and again and again until you start coming to me with it. Right? How many of you have proven that? Yeah. And so the call is who I set free is free indeed. So we are in the word. We're abiding in the word. We're following him and receiving truth so that we can experience his freedom. In other words, we're coming to him to receive mercy and grace and get free. Does this make sense? Now, what I want you to know is this. Um, when we come to him, he will work on our stuff. But a lot of times what the church does is wants to work on the outside stuff. Pastor, I just want to quit being a jerk. Can you just help me to not be a jerk? And I, and I, and I usually, I'm sorry. Uh, you're probably a jerk because things are in your heart. <laughs> right? Or I just want to quit doing this. Or I, do, I just want my outward life to look better. Right? And we do that. And the Pharisees did that. We try and work on our outward life. I just, if I could just not sin quite so blatantly, I think I'd do better. And, and, and God doesn't do out in. He does in out. And this is the problem is we, we're, we want to be satisfied. Here's the deal. You can, you know, you're struggling with this thing or that thing. And you can outwardly not be doing it. But inwardly with your heart longing for it, desiring it. Right? And so Jesus goes right to the source. He goes inside out. And that's what we need to be aware of when we begin to enter into this process of becoming free indeed, that Jesus will start with our hearts. Uh, I love Psalm 51, verse 6. It says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Where? So we're looking for truth, right? God says, that's awesome. Let's start with the truth about your own heart. No! <laughs> and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Let's start about wisdom about what's going on in you before we start applying your wisdom to others. That's what God wants to do. Isn't that awesome and scary? And it won't work unless you really trust him. Because who wants someone you don't really trust looking at your heart and showing you what needs fixed? Amen? So... Yeah. So we begin by pursuing truth in our own hearts. And I want to point out that this is exactly the opposite of what you see at the Pharisees. And if you want to read this, you can go look it on your own. In Matthew 23, there's almost an entire chapter of woes. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you again, Pharisees. Third woe, fourth woe. I think there's like seven woes. Lots of woes, right? Whoa, 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 whoa. And most of them are about things like you clean the outside of the cup, but inside there's all this graft and iniquity. Uh, you paint the outside and you look really good, but inside you're just a whitewashed tomb and inside it's full of dead men's bones. He's, he's telling the Pharisees, you're doing really good with the outward, but your insides are nasty. Right? And we don't want to be Pharisees, do we? So let's start with the inside. Now, the Pharisees, unsurprisingly, are not happy about the things that Jesus is saying, right? And so in verse 37 through 47, and again, I'm going to blow through these pretty quickly, uh, the Pharisees want to kill him. Jesus says, uh, you guys want to kill me. They don't just want him to stop talking. Now they want him dead. Uh, it's, they've really had enough. So the Pharisees want to kill him, and Jesus says, you want to kill me? Because there is no place in you for my word. And then again, in verse 43, you can't even hear it. You can't even hear the things I'm saying to you because there's no place in your heart for my word. And that's why you want to kill me, right? I'm telling you guys, it's a matter of degrees, but we got to make a place in our heart for God's word, even if it hurts, or we'll try and kill that thing because it hurts. And then he tells them, the reason you can't listen to my word is, they start talking about, who's your daddy? And, uh, yeah. Because Jesus is saying, the father's his daddy. And they're going, God's our father. And Jesus goes, nope. If that was your daddy, you'd 
act like him. He goes, you're acting like a different daddy. He says, your daddy is the devil. And they don't, they don't like this either. Uh, he says, their father is the devil. And he tells them, I can tell your father is the devil because you're pursuing his desires. I know him. Let me tell you about him. His two chief characteristics are lying and murdering, which is what you guys, Pharisees, are all about, right? And so he's busting them on that, and he says they're liars and murderers. Now, there is a principle here, and again, I want you to get this because I don't know that the church always realizes that we're in spiritual warfare. We feel like, you know, I'm... You know, well, that person manifests a devil, so I'll go over there, and that'll be spiritual warfare. But then when I go home, I don't have to do spiritual warfare until someone else manifests a devil. Well, no, that thing might follow you home and try and talk to you. You got to be ready to do spiritual warfare everywhere, right? And so we need to get that. And part of that is a couple principles that are revealed here. The first one is this. The Pharisees want to kill Jesus because he keeps telling them the truth. Evil... Here's the principle. Evil has to silence or kill truth. Because you can't have truth out there convicting people of truth. Evil will not just ignore truth. It has to make it stop. It will be, I will lie to silence it. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to kill it. Anybody see any of this going on? Maybe in our contemporary society? This is a solid, inviolate principle in the earth. Evil has to kill truth because truth is a threat to it. We just got to know this, guys. We just got to be aware of this. And it's no reason to quit speaking the truth. Uh, just got to be ready to do some spiritual warfare. Amen? Amen. Now, uh, they're really getting pretty mad at Jesus now. And so they're gonna, they want to cuss, but they're Pharisees. So, and it's the temple. You know, so they come up with the most evil thing they can think of. And so they call Jesus a demonic Samaritan, okay, which is pretty bad. Uh, you have a devil and you're a Samaritan, right? That's as bad as you can cuss in church. So uh, there you go. That's where they're at. Uh, they're really ticked. Uh, but again, it reveals a principle. We need to, you know, Jesus told us to be uh, innocent as does, but wise as serpents, to not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. So we need to kind of have a clue how evil works. And so there's another principle here. Evil will always call evil good and good evil. Anybody see that happening? Evil calls evil good and good evil. Now, there's a place in Isaiah 5, we really see this. And I want to read this because it paints such a good picture. In Isaiah 5, verses 18 through 21, Isaiah says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. Now, do you see the picture? He's saying, here's a guy coming along, and he's got a rope, and he's pulling a cart, and in the cart is every imaginable sin. He's just dragging a cartload of sin behind him. Now, let's learn more about this guy. That say, let him, God, make speed and hasten his work that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and are prudent in their own sight. So, if you see someone, even someone who appears to be a lover of Jesus, saying things like, Oh, hasten your work, Lord. Let your work come. I'm, I want your counsel, God. We want to hear your voice. We want you to speak. And you notice that behind him is a cart full of sin that he's dragging along. And he says, that's good. And by the way, I'm real impressed with my own wisdom. You should stop following that guy. You should stop listening to that guy. Right? No matter what he says about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying someone that struggles. I'm saying someone who's pulling a cartload of sin behind him and goes, that's good. You with me? That's how you can tell evil. Evil will call evil good and good evil. All right, so this chapter ends. I'm just going to finish it up with uh, they continue to talk about 
deep theological things and they get to talking about uh, Abraham and whose kids they are and whose descendants they are and all that good stuff. And uh, um, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they go, dude, what are you talking about? You're not that old. You didn't know Abraham. You're, only, you're not even 50. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, which is the name God gave Moses. Uh, when Moses said, who shall I send? He's talking to a burning bush. And he says, who shall I tell him sent me? And God says, I am. Jesus, to all the Pharisees, says, before Abraham was, I am, capital I, capital A, capital M. And the Pharisees lose their stuff and start picking up rocks to stone him. They're way past calling him a Samaritan. But they can't stone him because it's not his time and he just walks out. Awesome, right? Now, here's the takeaway. Here's what I want you to get out of this chapter. He establishes that we all have darkness early on in the chapter, right? The point of chapter 8 is this. Keep coming to the light. Keep coming, not just once. Keep coming to the light to receive mercy and grace to be free indeed from our slavery to sin. That's it. That's the point of the chapter. Now, mercy and grace are not the same thing. Grace is not a synonym for mercy. Mercy is forgiveness. Grace is much more than forgiveness. It is empowerment by the Holy Spirit to overcome. You understand? That's why we need both. I go to God. I go, I need mercy because I sinned. And I need grace because I'd like to not do it again. Right? So, in fact, we're encouraged to do this in Hebrews chapter 4. Listen carefully to this passage. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with all our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's talking about Jesus. He was t- and wherever you've been tempted in, he was tempted to. Uh, he just did better because he's God. Right? So the point of this is he can sympathize with our weakness. He knows we're flesh. He gets it. He gets it. Therefore, um, and that's why the therefore is there, because he gets it. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Do you all understand what boldly means or do I need to do the Greek? You understand the difference between coming meekly and timidly before the throne of grace or coming boldly before the throne of grace? You know who comes boldly before people? Kids. Your kids will just boldly come. They don't care. They don't care if you're talking to the president. They'll come and tug on your leg. Talk to me. That's what he's talking about. Come boldly before the throne of grace. He's talking about doing it in our time of need. Make no misunderstanding. This is in the context of sin, of weakness. He's saying when you're blowing it, come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly to the light. The last thing we want to do with our darkness, right? But he says, come boldly to the light. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Get it? And that's it. It's just a process of continually, day after day, coming boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace in our time of need as often as we need it. Well, how often will Jesus do that? I don't know. He told Peter to do it 70 times, seven times, every day. So maybe at least he'll do that. He'll probably try and be at least as good as Peter. Right? You with me? Just keep coming. Just keep coming. Mercy and grace. Now, to be honest, the degree I lack freedom is probably the degree to which I've been unwilling or unable to come to him for some reason. It's just that simple. Because if I come, uh, I will receive freedom indeed, if I come enough. Again, this is a lifetime. I get it. That no one's, anybody here perfect yet? 
because I'll turn over the pulpit right now. You get what I mean. But I find that there are two common reasons for a lack of freedom. One is that we lack continually coming. Uh, sometimes we just, uh, we just get tired. It's hard. I don't want to come again. I just keep doing this thing. I did it 70 times 7. I don't want to come anymore. Come again. Get mercy and grace. Keep coming until you win. There's grace. There's grace. Sometimes it's John 3. It's because I like my darkness. I could come right now because I'm really tempted and I really want to do this thing. And I could come right now and ask God for grace to overcome. Or I could just do it and go tomorrow and ask for mercy. Uh, that's just me. You guys wouldn't do that, right? No one? You with me? Sometimes it's just we love our darkness a little bit. And we try and blame something else. I go, yeah, I got it. And so I just, you know, I, I go, God, I really, I'm coming because uh, I see something in my heart. I don't want it there, but it's there. I want to do this, but I know you don't want me to do this. And it's not all just big stuff, guys. Uh, I know I need to forgive this guy. But I'm really angry at him, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to complain just to three people, that's all. <laughs> and then I'll forgive him tomorrow, by the end of the week for sure. I know I could come and get grace to forgive him now, but you'll forgive me if I, if I wait till the end of the week, right? And he will, that's the thing. He will. I'll just still be in bondage to sin until I do it. Right? Are you with me? So we do that, don't we? The other reason I find that we often don't come is because we believe lies and it causes us to be afraid. We hide in the dark because we think bad things are going to happen if we bring our darkness into his light. Uh, we, don't, we either believe lies about us or about what he thinks about us. And uh, let me just address that fear uh, real simply, you guys all know this verse, 1 John 4, 18, perfect love casts out fear. If you're afraid ever to come boldly before, I don't, again, like the child, it's in your, the, your worst state, come boldly before the throne of God. If you're afraid to do that, you need a greater experience of his love. Amen. Right? Amen. By the way, uh, Romans 2 tells us it's his goodness that leads us to repentance. You need, if you're struggling with repenting, God, I want to repent, but I'm really stuck here. You need a greater experience of his goodness. You know how you experience his love and his goodness? Come boldly before your throne in the midst of your sin. I'm telling you, first few times that happened to me where I'd blown it, and I, and I go to God, and I start feeling his love and his mercy, and it's tripping me out. I'm going, what are you doing? I haven't even finished, you know, confessing because I, I, you know, I want to do it right. Cross all my T's and dot all my I's. And you're, and I'm, and I'm feeling your love for me. What is up with this? But you know what it would do? It would change me to where I'm going and confessing because I don't want to sin because I don't want God to be mad at me to, I don't want to do this anymore because he loves me so much. I don't want to disappoint him. His goodness is causing me to want to live a more repentant life. I'm telling you, you need to go to the throne all the time and get mercy and grace and experience his love and his goodness because it'll make us free. And we all got stuff for the rest of our life to work on, don't we? If you don't, I'll introduce you to some people that'll help you. Amen? All right. Let's have the band up. So, I just want to, as we go back into worship, I just want to pray. I think my, my desire for you guys uh, today is just that last thing I was talking about, that we would have a greater experience of his love and his goodness, that we would have uh, increase in that. And it doesn't matter. If you've got issues, 
You can go to him and say, I need mercy and grace and experience his love and his goodness. If you're sitting here today and you go, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I don't have issues. You can still go to him and go, but I don't have enough love and, and goodness experience. I, I'm coming for mercy and grace. Give me more love and goodness experience. The bottom line is, come to the light. Come to the light. Come to the light. He's the one that makes free. Amen? So let's stand. As we go into worship, I just want to pray for you. Lord, I just want to begin by saying we understand that you are love and that you are light, that in you dwells no darkness and that for us, in you dwells only love. And so Lord, we just come with open hearts saying we trust you even to look at our hearts and to begin to uh, lead us into all truth, to begin to show us light in your light. Lord, if you want to work on stuff this morning, go ahead, but we're not just coming so you can work on us. We're just coming to be near you. Lord, we all, I know, I know every single one of us, me included, need a greater experience of your love today, of your goodness today. Lord, we need to be utterly convinced, walking in confidence in your love and in your mercy and in your goodness and in your grace towards us, regardless of how we're doing. Lord, we come to you. I love that you did everything. You died on the cross. You did all the hard work so we could just come to you and receive. So this morning, Lord, I pray you would pour out a love of the truth and that we would receive it. We want to receive a love of truth. Just to know truth and be free. Thank you, Jesus.